such a millennial thing. (laughs) (laughs) This is our podcast about generational issues in the workforce. From a mom-daughter perspective. I'm Emmy Hayes. And I'm Lynn Hayes. Let's work on work. Hi, Emmy. Hey, Mom. This is really exciting today. You know why? Why? We have a guest. (gasps) Oh, that is exciting. I know. So we oftentimes sit and talk to each other, but it's so nice sometimes to get another professional's point of view. And this guest happens to be another millennial. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys after I introduce our guest, but I just want to um, give everyone uh, a shout-out or talk about my esteemed colleague, Dr. Emily Ingalls. Uh, She and I are facilitators of a really great workshop that we do together sometimes and sometimes alone. Uh, the company that we do this for is Psychological Associates, and that's the company that uh, Dr. Ingalls works for. I work as a facilitator for them occasionally. Uh, we'll talk of maybe a little bit about the workshop later, but before we do that, I'd like to turn it over to you, Emmy, so that you might uh, impart some of your wisdom and get some of Dr. Ingalls' wisdom. Yes. Hello, a fellow Emily. Hello, how are you? I'm good. We're so excited to have you today. As Mom has mentioned, we kind of riff from here to here without a lot of, quote, scientific evidence to back up some of our amazing claims. So we're excited (laughs) to have your brain power and expertise um, and definitely learn more about, you know, what you do on your day-to-day facilitating um, all kinds of um, deeper dives into how people act like they act and why we do what we do. But, you know, to, to start it off, I'd love to just get to know you a little bit and your background and um, where you currently are today. Sure, yeah. So, great to be here. Uh, my background is, as you may have guessed from the title of our organization, is in psychology more specifically in the subset of psychology called industrial organizational psychology. Okay. So it's kind of a a branch within the the overall field. As you may have guessed, I went to school for an eternity. Uh, So (laughs) uh, a lot of my uh, background has been spent in one level of education or another, uh, but I've also had the great opportunity to work for a couple of really cool organizations, both since and along the way. No, that's really great. So I know Mom you know, introduced you as a fellow millennial, so do you fall on the older millennial spectrum or younger millennial spectrum? Well, I suppose that depends on what definition of millennial you use, uh, but I would say closer to the older end okay. than the younger end. Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to think. Were you like a Nickelodeon kid? Uh, well, I was a, my parents don't have cable kid. Um, even better. (laughs) Uh, but, you know, child of the late 80s, let's say that. Yes, definitely. No, I rocked some PBS back in the day. Arthur, (laughs) Wishbone. Very Um, much, yes. I think, uh, Jack Russell Terriers everywhere have that to think. Yes, gotta get some wishbone shout out. Going back to, you know, education, I know that that's definitely been a a standout for our our generation as millennials. Um, Definitely, you know, we are probably the largest um, generation to go to go to college and continuing education. Um, from you know looking at baby boomers pr- perspective and then Gen X kind of caught up in more of the higher ed um, world and then definitely I think there is some statistic out there I'll back it out 
back it up somewhere with a link, but I think the uh, millennial generation is definitely one of the better um, educated, and not just saying, like, you know, smarter, just, you know, more school, more emphasis put on um, our education, our continuing education, and that investment we make. So I'm just curious to know what kind of sparked that um, path for you and what inspired you to get started um, within the world of instructional design and, and pursuing a PhD. Totally. So I think something that seems to be a commonality between me and a lot of my colleagues is we started out as people who had no idea what we wanted to do. Uh, generally speaking, there's a trend of you know trying a bunch of different things, changing your major half a dozen times until you finally got to something that stuck. And for me, that was psychology. Uh, as a lot of people probably can anticipate, if you want to do something within that field, you tend to need one advanced degree or another, be that an MBA, a master's in social work, a PhD in clinical or um, industrial organizational psychology, which is my background. Mm -hmm. uh, so once I decided I was interested in furthering my career in psychology, graduate school was a, a natural path from there. I think my background, I took one psych class and really enjoyed it. The professor was awesome, but I was always interested in obviously, you know, what makes people tick, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> to put in a better way. Um, so that's, that's really great that you kind of found what, I mean, passion I feel like is kind of an over, um, you know, an overused word sometimes, but definitely I, I feel it's very powerful to a millennial generation is that word passion and kind of pursuing what honestly sparks, sparks joy, not to rip off, you know, <laughs> cleaning your house, <laughs> but I think it's relevant. I've been using it probably overkill to too many things in my life, but definitely, you know, it's something that is different, um, is definitely pursuing that, that thing that really grips you and you want to, want to do. So, okay, so education, you go through, you know, all of the learning and um, you graduate. And what was your first job? What was that like for you, being a millennial and a, you know, and a PhD, for that matter, entering a, a workforce? PhD programs are kind of weird in that you have kind of your traditional school part where you have lots of classes, lots of homework, papers, all of that stuff. And then you have a couple, one, two, five, however many years after that, where you're working on your dissertation, which is kind of this nebulous, free-flowing, as complicated as you make it type of a project. And so most people try to find something to pay their bills while they're doing that, uh, which was pretty much my path. I started working full-time while I was still working on my dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was kind of this ongoing struggle between what's my main focus is my main focus the thing that's taking up all these hours in my day or is my main focus this project I've been working on for a decade um, <laughs> so I think you know it was that was a little bit strange and unusual uh, and I think it took some getting used to also to go from something that's a little bit less structured like an academic environment where you know your classes might be at nine o'clock in the morning they might be at six o'clock at night you can kind of do what you want to when you're not in class to something that was much more scheduled like a full-time job where you're working from you know eight to five every day in the same building right yeah, I um, I long for the days 
where there was in between time of classes they could do whatever you wanted yeah taking naps where yeah. did that go <laughs> no, bring back the nap amazing you know education coming out working you know double time basically while you're working on a dissertation and you have all this credibility and all of this education and can you walk us through maybe a time or an example of walking into a room and be because you're this youthful millennial presence that maybe um, you are taken aback at the reception of your credibility and you know having a voice at a table where um, sometimes it's hard it's hard for change and hard for new perspectives to kind of you know light up a room sure all the time uh, I think even back in graduate school before I started working full-time I earned a living, so to speak, by teaching statistics. And, of course, I was teaching students who were largely younger than me, but younger by a very small margin. Mm -hmm. So trying to have that executive presence in the front of a classroom was a bit of a challenge when, even if age-wise I was slightly older than they were, my face does not look that way. <laughs> Uh, which people tell me I'll be happy about in 20 years, but uh, at that stage, it, it made things a little bit challenging when you walk into the room and they think you're a student, and then you actually have to go up to the front and teach them and grade their papers and hold them accountable. So I think that kind of started out my experience dealing with that type of a situation, and it did continue that way when I was more kind of in the quote-unquote real world, if you will, um, especially doing what I do now, which includes a lot of stand-up facilitation, uh, talking about leadership development, helping build teams and improve team functioning, some of those types of, of projects. You know, there is a credibility that comes from gray hair, as some of my colleagues would like to call it. Uh, <laughs> I know, uh, <laughs> I know. My hair is pink right now. That's okay. Move. No gray hair, just pink hair. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to stick within the, the normal hair color spectrum. Awesome. Um, to, but to varying shades. And, yes. you know, there have been times where my natural highlights are a little bit more visible, which is the polite way of saying gray hair. Uh, and other times where they're not. <laughs> I get it. Um, but, yeah, I think it is a, a challenge to be able to stand on your your experience and your merits when the degree to which you have that expertise is called into question by being a young not super tall female right. uh, in today's work environment yeah well I also just called out I really love that you just you just said stand on your experience I think that is definitely um, you know a mantra we should all have and in relatively relatively Oh, wow, I can't say that word. Relative to <laughs> taking up space. I think that's also just really nice to, you know, stand on your experience, take up space, make the move, say the thing. It's so important. Yeah. Um, so that's really great insight. Uh, I think Mom has a few questions, so I'm going to hand, hand this over to her. Here you go. Hi, Emily. Hello. I heard you girls talking, and it sounded like a very millennial conversation. Um, <laughs> And when I heard Emmy say, stand on your experience, I have seen you in action, and you absolutely have the poise of someone 
um, with a lot of experience. So um, what advice would you give uh, others, and I'm, I'm just going to say people entering the workplace or you know, younger, newer employees, what, what kinds of things did you learn to help you get there, to be able to stand on your experience? And, and what would you tell somebody entering the workforce today that would be, you know, some tips and tricks to help them? I think the advice I find myself giving when I'm asked typically is something along the lines of try everything. I think... <laughs> you know, I think I'll take that advice from you. There are days I, I think there are days when I've come to the back of the room and looked at you and said, what should we try now? <laughs> so trying everything is great. I love that. Yeah, you know, and I think we don't really, we're often not in that position anymore where there's one clear, distinct path to get you to any destination. So I think it's time better served to try something that seems interesting to you if it sticks awesome if you don't like it try something else if it works well take the parts that work ditch the parts that don't and kind of take that experimental mindset to everything that you do I think that's my recommendation that I usually give and I think what goes along with trying everything is recognizing that you will fail and that failure is uncomfortable but it's important and the first time you do anything, you're probably going to suck, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, it's funny that you say that, that you have to um, be prepared to fail. And I will take responsibility as a baby boomer to say that we have raised a generation of children who are now grown adults that really were never allowed to fail very much. Mm-hmm. And I think um, part of it is, I think everybody's willing to fail. I just think we didn't give people enough practice at it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, not kind of having that early practice where you can fail and it doesn't really feel like it counts as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's part of it. And I think we, just in general, and I don't know if this is a generational thing or not, um, but we we don't want to look to other people like we don't know what we're doing. When in reality, if you look around, no one knows what they're doing. So <laughs> we might We're as well doing the best we can. Isn't that yeah, exactly, exactly. That's great. I love, I love that advice. Um, so I, I think I kind of over. I, I mean, I, I heard you guys talking a little bit about you know being young and entering the workforce and those kind of things. I am a big proponent of young people in the workforce because heaven knows we need the energy and the new ideas. Um, what do you think's driving some of the, you know, you and I both know when we talk to a group of leaders, whenever I ask about leadership challenges, one, one thing that almost always comes up is those darn millennials mm-hmm. or that newer generation. You know, they don't want to work as hard as we did. They want to be the CEO in two years. What do you think is driving some of this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, underlying a lot of it, my inclination is typically just lack of understanding. I think we have a human tendency to try to group and make sense of things that don't make sense to us. 
And I think that's part of what's driving some of the stereotypes that you see when it comes to millennials, that we see this thing out there we don't totally understand. It'll make more sense to our brains if we group people together and put a label on it. Um, but ultimately, it's it's not getting to the root of well, what really is a difference, if there is one, and what do we do about it? That's one of the things that we teach people in our workshop, isn't it? That you shouldn't stereotype people. Mm-hmm. That, we, that you should say, this is what I can see and this is what I can hear, but I can't make any other assumptions about this person. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn this back over to Emmy for a minute. Okay, so, Emily, I heard um, Mom was kind of asking you, and I, I call her Mom, it's Lynn, Lynn Hayes, she's a professional woman, <laughs> I just call her Mom, and it, I guess, you know, it throws everyone off, so, um, Lynn I just asked you kind of, you know, about stereotypes, and that's definitely something that we, we talk about a lot, if not mm-hmm. all the time, so, um, you know, with your experience, would you mind kind of elaborating, you know, why why we have stereotypes and how they're developed and how we can kind of um, go about changing our minds around, you know, what we think of as stereotypes? Like I was kind of talking about, we have this very normal or natural desire as people to try to put things into groups and to make sense of our environment, to make some of those kind of cognitive categorizations faster so that when you see someone new or you see something that's different you're able to respond more quickly that's kind of the adaptive way that they developed Uh, however I think when we start to do that too broadly or we try to do that in ways that don't necessarily facilitate our learning you get some of what you're seeing with millennials and boomers and a whole bunch of other things today Um, So you have people, for instance, who think that all millennials want in the workplace is free food and to get promoted every two years or every five minutes in some cases, which (laughs) to me, I think. (laughs) I'm kidding. That was just a stereotype. So that's true. I mean, mean, right. Who doesn't like (laughs) free lunch? You know, who wouldn't want to be promoted? Of course. Right. But I think what's really there is a strong desire to feel appreciated in your work and to feel like you're having an impact on the organization and on your community through the work that you do. And I think that's what's more important. That's what's going to get people to both enter your organization and to stay there is do they feel appreciated for what they do and can you connect their day-to-day work to something bigger than themselves? Yes, and I'm going to say to that, that's awesome that that solidifies a big point that is, you know, reported on and talked about, but definitely correlating purpose to results. So I know, you know, my my peers definitely want to go work for a company that, you know, it's not just about the perks anymore, it's definitely about attaching themselves to a, a bigger goal mm-hmm. and seeing their day-to-day work being recognized and appreciated towards that bigger goal that usually is more of a... Um, you know, sustainable goal or something that affects other people outside of just, you know, their workforce and et cetera. It goes on. So Mm -hmm. that's really exciting to see. And with that, um, you know, I think there are stereotypes at play, but also, I mean, so, okay, taking a a beat here, going to go rogue. Um, 
I, I find it interesting all of a sudden that, you know, you are of a millennial generation. You have, you know, PhD in understanding um, organizational um, behavior, etc. And you entered into, you know, your work at Psychological Associates has been established for a very long time. And correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. Is that right? No, that's right. Okay, so they have had, they have kind of been at the forefront, I would say, of generations, you, you know, just kind of discussing what it means to work at work. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm kind of curious to, to take your personal experience of entering an organization that has established itself into um, really dissecting what is now, you know, a hot topic of, of how we all work together, and then even dovetailing into how you see the future of work and really where this whole field is evolving and, and going. Excellent. I mean, why don't we start with yes. kind of the the more the historical side? So what are some of those tried and true practices or theories that have been around for longer than I've been alive? Let's okay. just call it that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think you know, when you think about some of what we do, which is developing leaders, helping organizations to really foster that leadership development that both promotes superior results, but also in a way that's conscious and considerate of the people that work around you. When you think about how to continue to cultivate that, it all goes back to the behaviors that you show. Uh, We tend to want to group people into personality types and to say, you know, I'm an INTP and you're an ENTJ and how can we possibly work together and everything gets all muddled. But really, our behaviors are what we're in control of. And any of us can make our behaviors more effective, more adaptive to the environment that we're in. And those behaviors might look slightly different or slightly nuanced from one person or one year to the next. But there's a lot of consistency over time in those behaviors that promote engagement, the development of others, achieving results and what our goals tend to be within organizations. And so even though this model, a lot of the work that we practice was developed many years ago, the behavioral tenets behind it still ring really true today. And so I think that's kind of what I turn to thinking about being a millennial relatively new to the organization that's been in business for so long. Right, no, that's outstanding. I mean, that's a really good foundation. Um, to explore as we all move forward into how how we work and and how we behave because some people behave very badly (laughs) that's true Uh, and I think part of what we need to do is to create that awareness around when behavior maybe wasn't as optimal as it could have been But at the same time, also, to keep it in that realm of behavior, that you may have behaved poorly in a certain situation, but that doesn't mean that you can't change it. That doesn't mean that it is a reflection on you as a human being. It's just that you need to be more intentional and purposeful in the behaviors you show in the future. Yes, mic drop. I feel the IQ of the room has raised quite a bit since we've been talking to Dr. Ingram. Please call me Emily. I like calling you Dr. Ingalls. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is so fun, just talking about stuff. I so, agree. Um, Emily, you and I know each other professionally. That's how we found each other. 
you helped me get certified to teach leadership through people skills. And we would be remiss if we didn't at least put a little bit of a plug in for it and for the tools and the content that we help facilitate and help people with. So um, I'm not, this is kind of off script and I'm not exactly sure how to do it, but I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about what you do at, at Psychological Associates and maybe a little bit about the workshop. Sure. So like we were talking about with leadership behavior and fostering some of those behaviors that both promote great results, but in a way that is considerate and respectful of people, that is really the cornerstone behind our workshop, which is called Leadership Through People Skills. And that's the workshop that Lynn and I both facilitate. And Leadership Through People Skills is a two and a half or so day uh, workshop where we really dig into understanding what those effective leadership behaviors are, which we call Q4 behavior. And then also from there, what are some tips and tools and techniques that you can use in some of the most difficult conversations we have to have as leaders so that you're coming across in that Q4 way particularly if you um, maybe really struggle to have those conversations in the most effective way possible. Um, and so, for instance, we talk about structures that those conversations can take. We give participants hands-on practice where they get to uh, tape themselves having a particular conversation and they get real-time feedback from their peers and from us around things they did well, things they could do differently. And all of this wraps up or kind of ends with some real hands-on practical skills people can take with them back to the workplace. Yeah, I, I've been so impressed with both the, the format and then the learners. There's always, it always seems like there's some kind of an aha moment with almost every one of them that I've had in class. Mm -hmm. And part of it comes from knowing that or having the confidence that the really only thing in the workplace that they can control is them. And we teach them how to observe behavior so that they can adjust their style to match or to help um, facilitate those hard conversations with people that might not have the same behaviors that they do. And a lot of times those conversations uh, are left unsaid, so that tends to be the problem that fosters all the drama in the workplace. So. We just help people, we shore them up and help them get um, good at having really um, good conversations, I think. Definitely. Uh, but I think in addition to that work that we do at the workshop, we carry over some of these same principles into other parts of the business. So, I know, and, and I'm not as familiar with those, so if you want to just talk a little bit about some of that stuff or some of those things, that would be really great. Yeah. Uh, so kind of the rest of my day job, so to speak, is I do a lot of assessments with organizations for new leaders who are potentially being hired into a role or for existing leaders to help them identify areas they could grow and improve. Uh, so a lot of looking at different assessment tools, doing uh, behavior-based interviews with them, learning more about their previous experience, that's a big part of what I do. 
Um, related to that also are feedback sessions using 360-degree feedback surveys, having meetings with hiring managers and HR leaders to help them figure out what is their leadership pipeline, how can we help them create developmental opportunities that promotes the long-term growth and stability of their leaders. See, I didn't know you were doing all that in your office, Emily. Yes. I know you guys are really busy. That's the other great thing about Psychological Associates. I, I know Emmy said that it's a company that's been around a long time, and it has been, and, and tried and true. I also know that there is a lot of thought going into the future of work and how we're going to keep you know, going forward because change is constant. When it shows up on my leadership challenges board, I, I always say, why is this up here? Because <laughs> it, it is, it is. It's reality, right? It doesn't yeah, that's real. change just keeps coming. I got one last question for you. Great. What did you want to be when you grew up? I thought about that as I was, you know, preparing for this podcast. And the thing I can remember wanting to be the youngest was a teacher. Oh. And you know and what, Emily? Me too. Yes, Whenever I can see that. school, I was always the teacher. Loved it. Yeah. And I think I, I thought about kind of why did I want to be a teacher. And part of it, I'm sure, was that's what I saw every day. Um, But also, I have a really deep and enduring love for school supplies. Oh, like tablets and Sharpies and... Markers and notebooks and post-its and and all of it. Can't, can't get enough. And I feel like when Emmy was in fifth grade, I bought her a file cabinet for her birthday. (laughs) I remember... I remember asking for a podium, so (laughs) she is not alone. Well, on that note, my dear, I think we're going to let you get back to all that busy stuff that you're doing. This was so much fun. I can't wait to hear how it turns out. Yes, me too. Okay. Well, um, I will see you next week. We've got a workshop. Yes, I'll be there Tuesday morning. Okay. Well, um, we'll talk soon. Thanks for your time. Yeah, it was great being here. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more information, go see our website, edgehill.co. Edgehill.co. So my Myers-Briggs is an ENTJ. Um, If you look that up on any of the Harry Potter-related things, I typically get compared to to, uh, Voldemort, which is not awesome. Uh, <laughs> You're the first person I've met who's admitted that out loud. You know, I think you gotta own it, right? Yeah. That you. I love it. I, love I it. really am. Uh, what's the point in hiding it? <laughs>